All right, we are in Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, where we read, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for an opportunity to be with my brothers and sisters. I thank you for your word, God. I thank you that we can be here together to dive deep into your word, to hear you speak, Lord, to feed on your revealed will for us, God. I just pray that you would give us ears to hear and open minds and open hearts to receive what you would have us know, God. So work tonight by your spirit in each and every one of us, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Okay, so today we're considering the creation of sea life and of avian life. We see here God fills the seas and the first heaven or the sky. And we see again a parallelism between the second and fifth days. Just like we saw a parallel between the first day where God said let there be light and the fourth day where he created the physical sources of light. On the second day, we read this, and God said let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Remember, God took that formless ball of water he called into being and made the firmament or expanse that separated the waters from each other. And God created that space between the waters under the expanse and those over the expanse. And within that expanse is what we would call the sky or heaven. Here, God fills those waters below the expanse. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And I want us to take note of how this is written in Hebrew. In Hebrew, words will often be repeated for emphasis. Here, God calls for the waters to swarm with swarms. It literally says, swarm the waters with swarms in the Hebrew. It's putting an emphasis on the abundance of life that God designed the waters to be filled with. And this actually aligns with what modern science would tell us. Millions of types of life exist in the waters on Earth, and we are pretty sure we know less than half of them. The waters are literally swarming with swarms of life. But even more important is what the swarms of creatures are here. God says, swarm the waters with swarms of living creatures. It actually says in the Hebrew of living alive things. Swarm the waters with swarms of living alive things. The emphasis here is on the life in these creatures. Remember what I said about day three. We would consider plants alive. God created plants on the third day to prepare the earth for animals to live. But animal life is a higher form of life. That's being emphasized with the living alive things here. We see this in that plants are presented as passive, right? Plants don't do anything. We were told this, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. 
The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. See, the action here isn't taken by the plants, really. It's said to be done by the earth. It's almost like the ground gets the credit for plant life, which really it kind of does. But here, on day five, we see that these living, alive things are active. The very alive ocean life swarms. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. The also very alive birds fly in that expanse that God created on day, uh, day two. Only this doesn't say birds here. It really says flying things in the Hebrew. It's really a repetition of a word. One is a noun and one is a verb. God literally says, let the flying things fly. And that repetition, again, is emphasis. The swarming things swarm and the flying things fly. And this is a different kind of life being described from the plants God created on day three. It's a higher form of life. And this is important because we're going to see that mankind is going to be described as the highest form of life on earth. And this, of course, has been twisted by the enemy. And people who don't know God work very, very hard to save the trees and save the whales. And those same people tend to march for choice when it comes to abortion. Now listen, I'm good with saving the whales. I really am. But even more, I want human life to be preserved. I'm good with saving the trees. I'm good with saving birds that are near extinction. That's good. But even more, I want human life to be preserved because that's what God wants. And to make that clear, he's describing the life here. He's very much describing a hierarchy of life in the creation account. So as I said, God is not here set to create birds like we would understand the term. What we have here and elsewhere in the Bible is another accommodation to what the original audience would have understood. The term here really means flying thing or uh, some translations winged animal. This would include any animal that flies, including bats. Because listen, the Israelites circa the 14th or 15th century BC wouldn't have understood that bats were different from birds. We actually see this later when God gives Israel the food laws he says in Leviticus 11, these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every, any raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. Flying things. They wouldn't have known the difference. And flying things may even include here in the creation story flying insects. But we need to remember the point of Genesis. God didn't give us a scientific book. It's a theological book. God is not interested in taxonomy in the creation account. He's interested in communi communicating to us that he gave life to these things and filled his creation. And the same thing, of course, applies to the swarming sea life we read about on the fifth day. We, we know that some of these creatures are actually mammals and not fish at all. Why is this even important? Because we need to understand that God does accommodate the understanding of the original audience of the biblical writings. But that God groups bats and maybe even insects into the same class as birds doesn't mean there's a mistake in the Bible. It just means God is gracious enough to communicate to the level of his audience. He lowered himself and his words to the level of those he wanted to communicate with. And this is a pattern that is repeated throughout the Bible and that culminates in Jesus. God, the Word, lowered himself literally to our level to communicate his love and his salvation. So it shouldn't surprise us we see the same kind of condescension by God throughout Scripture. Now let's notice one more thing here. 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Just notice the order these are listed in, fish, then birds. The order is repeated twice in these verses, sea life and then the avian life. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that was the order God created them in. It could have just been one divine fiat and boom, they were both created at the same time. But in the pseudepigraphal book of Jubilees, which we've already considered, it's a book that records the creation account. It actually says this of the fifth day. And on the fifth day, he, meaning God, created the great sea monsters in the depths of the waters, for these were the first things of flesh that were created by his hands, the fish and everything that moves in the waters. And everything that flies, the birds, and all their kind. This, this reveals the Jewish understanding at the time of Christ. The order is more firmly asserted here. First fish were made, then birds. And if you know any of the modern theories of evolution, this is always what they say was the first life on Earth, right? Ocean life. First were the fish. Some of them somehow got on land and became reptiles. Some of those reptiles became birds. Some stayed reptiles. Some of them somehow became mammals. But I digress. This is a case where science says ocean life was first and is absolutely correct. But you know why? It's because God made it that way. Remember what I said at the start. Science is just a means of discovering and understanding what God has done. And what has God done? God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. I want us to know here this is only the second time the word for create that we discussed, the Hebrew word bara is used in this account. This is the word that, as I said, many people think means to create out of nothing, but it doesn't mean that. It just, it doesn't mean that here. It's a word that can mean to create out of already existing materials, but it's a word that's only ever used to describe the work of God in the Bible. And if his word is again used here once more, I think this shows us the hierarchy of life God is creating. Plants were created along with the inanimate land, sea, stars, everything else in the first three days. And that might even be why the angels aren't mentioned in the Genesis account of creation. God is trying to give us an orderly account of creation that aligns with the point of view of the original audience. God doesn't create higher life on earth until day five. He doesn't carry out his plan for life until he himself has done everything that needed doing for physical life to exist. This is the same thing Christ does, us, does for us spiritually, right? This is what God does. God works to create life. And here, God says, let the waters swarm and the birds fly. But notice, life is created by God. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, earth across the expanse of heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And this is significant because the next time we will see God create that word bara is when he makes man. Again, animal life is higher than plant life, but human life is the highest form of life on earth. And this is why at the start of each type of creation, the universe designed for life to exist, the higher forms of life in the animals, and the highest form of life in man, God is said to bara, to create. The word is separating these orders of life for us. Which means I'm sorry to any of my friends who might be pescatarians who believe it's less cruel to eat fish than birds or mammals somehow, but God has placed them all on the same level. And don't tell me fish can't feel any pain unless you can tell me what fish told you that. <laughs> so here we see the distinction between mammal and fish was not made by God. There is no distinction because God created the great sea creatures. And the word great really means large. So this is the large sea creatures like the whales, but it would include fish that are larger than some mammals, right? The whale shark is 100 times the size of a dolphin. 
One's a fish, one's a mammal. In other words, let's not take scientific taxonomy and impose it on the creation account. That's not God's point. And it would have meant anything to the original audience. But there is something here that would have meant something to the original audience. It would have meant a lot. In pagan creation myths, great sea creatures were considered the sea dragons or the leviathans. The very same word, in fact, in Hebrew used for sea creatures here is used in Canaanite mythology to speak about the supernatural sea creatures who served Yam, god of the sea. We talked about him a few weeks ago in his war against Baal. And this is why Satan is referred to as the dragon from the sea or as Leviathan in the Bible. The Bible borrows from his pagan imagery in order to debunk it. See, the Bible correlates Satan with this divine rebel in Canaanite mythology. There's always some truth behind the myths. While we do see the descriptions used of Satan in the Bible, the point is that even the great sea creatures, even Satan, contrary to pagan mythology, these are all created by God and under his sovereign rule. There is no competition for God. He alone has the power. He alone creates life. We also see here what we saw in plant life. God made every type of sea life according to its kind, and every winged creature according to its kinds. This kind is a word of category. There's this kind, and then there are other kinds. And the Hebrew word for kind is only ever used of living organisms. It only refers to plants, sea creatures, flying things, insects, and mammals in the entire Bible. Now combine this with the very clear hierarchy of types of life being described here, and the Bible leaves no room for anything like the theory of macroevolution, that one kind of life ever became another kind of life, that one kind of life ever became a higher form of life. And don't let anybody tell you it's unscientific to disbelieve in macroevolution because science has proven absolutely nothing regarding macroevolution, I assure you. Now, as an aside, this doesn't mean that microevolution can't be true, and I actually believe it is. This has been scientifically observed. The bodies of living organisms adapt to their surroundings, or some dominant trait is passed on to the progeny of certain organisms for the betterment of a species. In its simplest forms, how does this work? Well, when someone from Maine moves to Florida, their bodies will slowly adapt to the heat so they can live more fruitfully in the hot climate. If those same people move back to Maine, their bodies need to again adapt over time to the cold before they can tolerate it. We see it in animals, like some species that have been domesticated for generations. Through the generations, physical changes take hold that would make it difficult for them to return to the wild. You don't, you don't really want even the biggest, strongest domesticated dog going up against a wolf, no matter how small it is. Now, why does any of this matter? Well, because it, this means God did not necessarily create every species we know, right? God didn't necessarily create a smallmouth bass, a largemouth bass, a spotted bass, and a black bass. Maybe he created one of these. Maybe he created two of these and some have adapted and passed on its acquired traits to its progeny. God may not have created dogs, jackals, wolves, and coyotes. He may have created one or two of these, and they adapted and passed on acquired traits to his progeny. And of course, we have learned to manipulate this as man, right? Have you ever seen a pug? We know all about it. Now this will become important when we get to Genesis 6, and we'll talk about it again there, because this may mean Noah didn't necessarily load on the ark seven of each of the more than 35 known species of cattle, and to each of the nine known species of elephant. Maybe there was only a few species at the time, and what we know today are the product of this microevolution. But for now, we just need to be open to the fact that not every species of shark or sparrow is in view here, 
when we read, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. We have this again. This ends most of his creative acts. God saw that it was good. And again, this points to a purpose. God had a purpose in what he did here because the outcome is good or it can be translated fitting. And God's purpose is brought into clearer view here because God's ultimate purpose is life. And God creates this life and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. This is the first time God, God actually speaks to someone or something. This is the very first command in the Bible. All those other divine fiats that we read are simple statements. When our English Bible says, let there be light, the Hebrew just says, there was light. Here, the Almighty God gives a command to the fish and to the birds. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, why does he give the command? Because God uses his creation to carry out his plan for creation. Let me say that again. Listen, God uses his creation to carry out his plan for creation. And from the very beginning, he chose to do it this way. This is the way he still does it. And this culminates with the church. And when our mission is complete, the creation will finally be completed according to God's plan. In other words, God could have just filled the earth with all the birds and fish he wanted to and called it a day. But instead, he creates them. And he actually includes his creation in the completion of his purposes. That was always his plan. That means we, the church, was always his plan. Creating life through us was always his plan. Here, filling the sky and the seas are his plan, but he includes his creation in the process. This is also the first time we come across the phrase, be fruitful and multiply and fill. Here is God begins to create animals. They're commanded to be fruitful, to reproduce, and to multiply, to reproduce a lot in order to fill the area of their domain, whether the, the waters or the sky. And once again, the next time we see this is when God creates man, when we are given our mandate by God to fulfill his good purpose for his creation. So we again see that hierarchy of life. Animals are given a mandate. Man is given a higher mandate. But animals are given a mandate. They have a purpose in God's plan, and their purpose is to multiply and fill the earth. Their purpose is life. The whole point of God's creation is life. God's purpose is life culminating in eternal life for his elect. So what God is doing, even with the preparatory work of the first three days of creation, is creating this life. And note, the life that God creates is to create more life. The creator creates creators. Even in fish and birds, God's grandeur and power can be seen in their multiplying and filling the earth. Because only life can create Life, this is a principle that even modern science, if done right, will tell you. And what that means is that there has to be a first life, and that life has to be uncreated, and that life has to be eternal, and that life has to exist of itself, because if that wasn't the case, there wouldn't be anything at all. And the creation account, time and time and time, again, points to God as that creator, that eternal, self-existent source of everything. He is life. And he created life, and he has purposed that the life he has created would create more life. See, this is the grand purpose. 
This is also the first time God pronounces the blessing over any part of his creation. Because, because God's blessing is reserved for life that produces life. And here in the fifth day, we see the first creatures receive that blessing. God makes the higher form of life, blesses them, and gives them a command. And because God said it, the earth will be filled with life. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Okay, now we're 83.333 all the way through the end of the six days of creation. And like we did with the third day, we're going to consider the first half of the sixth day. And we, of course, see another parallel here between the third and the six days. On the third and six days, God performs two distinct acts of creation on each day. Remember on day three, he creates the separation of land and sea, and then he creates plant life. On day six, he creates the land animals, part of that higher form of life, and then he creates the highest form of life on earth, which is man. We see another parallel between these creative acts on the third and six days, like we did between the second and fifth days. Because on the third day we read, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So on the third day, God began by creating land. Seas and skies made on day two, land on day three. Seas and skies filled on day five, land filled on day six. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. God called the dry land earth on day three. Here he makes living creatures, or again, the living alive things according to their kinds to fill the earth. That same hierarchy of living beings is evident. But these living alive things of the land are broken down into three categories. Livestock, creeping things, and beasts. And livestock would be those domesticated beasts of burden that would be used to farm the land. The beasts of the earth, literally the living things of the earth, this refers to the wild animals or the game that might be hunted eventually. These are the non-domesticated animals. But then we have these creeping things in here. And it's a very ambiguous term here. It's translated as creeping things. Some Bibles say creeping things, some say crawling things, some say moving things, some even translate this reptiles here in Genesis. The ESV actually renders this as reptile in 1 Kings 4 when speaking of Solomon's writings. He says, I must have missed one. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles, that's our word, and of fish. But we know this word can't refer exclusively to reptiles because it's also used by God to describe what animals man is allowed to eat after the flood when he says, every moving thing, that's the word, that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So what does the word mean here when God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds? Well, I think Moses and God chose an ambiguous word here on purpose. It would just be considered an all-encompassing word for all the small animal life that lives in the land, probably including non-flying insects, spiders, I know everybody's favorite thing, reptiles, rodents, things like that. So God is giving an all-encompassing description with these three words of what he makes. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And again, we see God's power at work. He said it, and it was so. God says it, it's so. And just like I said, there are distinctions being drawn between types of life on earth, there's a hierarchy of life, 
We see in this a huge distinction being drawn between any created being, including us, and God. Because God gives his higher creatures the ability to create. Animals and man, we create after our kinds. Right? I can't create a fern or a flounder or a ferret. Just like as James says, a fig tree can't bear olives or a grapevine produce figs. But God, he just says there should be plants and there are. He just says there should be fish and there are. He says there should be flying things and there are. He says there should be live, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth and there are. So, there is a hierarchy of life on earth. Each type of life can produce life after its kind. But then there's God. So, holy other, so all-powerful that with the word, he can make any life he wants. But that also points us to the purpose behind this all. See, God's plan here in creation is to make life and ultimately make life closer to what he is than the original creation could allow. He makes us now holy as he is holy, the Bible tells us. He will make us perfect someday. He will make us eternal if we believe. And yet, we are told we will not be in any way like God. So how is this possible? How does God make us like him when it's impossible for us to become like him? Well, God would first have to make himself like us. It's the only way he can make us like him. And that is the ultimate purpose. That is the plan that's being begun here in these first six days of the existence of the world. We have to keep this overarching truth in our minds as we go through the creation account and through the whole book of Genesis. God has a purpose. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. So note that unlike plants where God says, let the earth bring forth, and we're told, the earth brought forth, God says to let the earth bring forth, and then we're told, God made. Again, God creates the life. Not that word that, that we had before, not the word bara. Now we have a word here that just means to cause. Why is that? Because we saw the word bara is used of God's creative acts alone, and that word is used purposely in the creation account in each of those three critical creative acts that are carried out. Initial creation, creation of higher life, creation of highest life. So that means the animals are, in fact, part of the same group of higher life as the water life and the flying things. Also note here that unlike with the fish and the birds, the order of animals isn't consistent. In verse 24, livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth are created. In verse 25, beasts of the earth, livestock, and creeping things are created. All that means is the chronology of which of these was created first isn't intended here. It's just communicating that God made these types of life. But I want us to notice what isn't here. God doesn't address the land animals like he did to sea life and the flying things. There's no blessing for them. There's no mandate to them. Again, I think the three types of life are being lumped together in the hierarchy, and that's why God doesn't repeat it. Plus, we'll see later, after the flood, God lumps them all in again and repeats the mandate for all of them. He tells Noah, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creepy thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. In other words, God is making one rank of living being when he creates the animals, whether it's sea creatures, the flying things, or the land animals. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps in the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good.
Again, God saw that it was good. This is a purpose behind this. To describe a finished act of creation as good or fitting means it fulfills some kind of intended purpose. And the purpose, as I said, is that God is ultimately going to create eternal life for the elect. Next time, we're finally going to get to the focus of God's purpose, when we see man created as God's image bearer and co-region of the creation. But for tonight, now that we've looked at the lower forms of life, I just want us to consider how the sin of the higher order creatures, man and heavenly being, has affected the whole creation. So I pointed out, before the fall, there was no death. Every man, every animal were designed to be vegetarians. And that's why part of God's preparatory work was let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. God created the most sustainable food source you could imagine. And we looked at the end of Genesis chapter 1 where God tells man, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Now think about this. God fills the seas with the great sea creatures, and everything that moves in the waters, and they were vegetarians. Right? Great whites ate kelp. Not fish, not surfers. Orcas ate sea plants instead of cute little seals. God created eagles. And they didn't swoop down and pick up rodents, they ate plants. God created lions. They ate plants just like the bison did, instead of just eating the bison. I mean, if the fall never happened, Animal Planet would be the most boring station on television. But the fall did happen. And with it, death entered the world, and not just for man. And we'll get into the details of this when we get to Genesis 3. But because of our fall, the whole creation changed. Why? because the highest form of life sinned and everything under our dominion was affected. So that means the whole earth. So there is death even among animals as a reminder of our own failure. So when we get all excited for Shark Week, see those great whites doing their thing, you know, we should really feel more shame than excitement. And we should always remember, death is not natural. So now God has created everything except for man and he says it's good. And sin is going to change that very early on. And why is that important? Because even that happens for God to carry out his purpose through us. And that purpose includes the whole creation. We read in Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of his sons of God. For the creation, the whole creation, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves were the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that will happen. To read in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. <clears throat> he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the purpose of God. God created the fish with this as his purpose. When he created the birds, this was his purpose. When he created cows and lizards and mice, this was his purpose. This is still his purpose. We were made new in Christ so that this would be our purpose. So to close, I want to talk about how this truth has been twisted throughout history. I just want to go over a couple of things just to give you some ammunition against the world, okay? Now remember, the Israelites who, just, who were reading this just left Egypt. You know, the Egyptians had a creation account. Part of their myth is that a god named Adam, A-T-U-M, Atom, he was lord of the created worlds. He was the first to evolve and then created everything else that exists. And the creation stories were from his point of view, and he says, when I emerged from the roots, I created all the snakes and everything evolved from them. The idea of evolution is about 5,000 years old. And here you have a guy named Adam, I mean, does that sound familiar to anybody? As the first being to evolve, who creates everything else, and, you know, he evolves into this creature and has authority over the physical creation. You see, there's a kernel of truth to that, right? You can see how this is a twisted lie. An Amorite creation myth says that the earth and sea are gods who marry. They have a son named Gaiu, which just means earth or land, and he, he marries a sister named River. They have a child named Cush, known as a divine herdsman, and he fills the earth with sheep and cattle and herds and wild animals and rules over them. In other words, the son of a god is given dominion over the land and has authority over the animals. We see a twisting of the truth, right? We see how this is based on the truth, but is twisted. Well, let's talk about the modern myth of creation. Even those who espouse the idea of evolution generally have absolutely no idea what Darwin actually proposed. I, I mean that. When someone tells you they believe in evolution, ask them if they believe what Darwin said, and they say yes, ask them if they know what Darwin said. Really. Here's my copy of Origin of Species. I'll save you the trouble. Unless you like to hear about how plants reproduce, please don't waste the time. But here are some things that Darwin says from his own mouth or his own pen. In the introduction, ready? This abstract, which I now publish, must necessarily be imperfect. I cannot here give references and authorities for my several statements, and I must trust the reader reposing some confidence in my accuracy. No doubt errors will have crept in. He goes on, no one could feel more sensible than I do of the necessity of publishing in detail all the facts with references on which my conclusions have been grounded, and I hope in a future work to do this. For I am well aware that scarcely a single point is discussed in this volume on which facts cannot be adduced, often apparently leading to conclusions directly opposite those which I have arrived from the man himself. He says, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the folks to different distances, for emitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, these big words back then, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. It gets better. Do, 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 do. 
He who will go thus far, if he find on finishing this treatise that large bodies of facts, otherwise inexplicable, can be explained by the theory of descent, ought not to hesitate to go further and to admit that a structure even as perfect as the eye of an eagle might be formed by natural selection, although in this case I do not know of any of the transitional grades. Or, Although we must be extremely cautious in concluding that any organ could not possibly be produced by successive transitional gradations, yet undoubtedly grave cases of difficulty occur. You don't say, Charles. Geology assuredly does not reveal any finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. I'll spare you, but I'm going to skip to the end here. He finishes his book. This is the very last paragraph. There is grandeur in this view of life, his view he puts forth here, with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one. Darwin was a creationist when he wrote this book. Point that out to your evolutionist friends. Why do we need to know? this stuff? Why do we need to know about these competing myths about creation? Well, because we are still competing with myths out there in the world, aren't we? And we need to bring the truth to the world. There are ancient stories that are parallel to the creation account, just enough to make it easier for the world to say, ah, see, the Bible's just like any other myth. Evolution's not a new idea, but now it's just accepted out of hand as true. But the truth is that God continues to create new life through his church and spread his glory over all the earth, as was his original design. So we need to understand that what God says in his creation account, what Moses intended to communicate, and how Israel would have understood it, we need to understand this because this is where we find the truth. This is the foundational truth for the rest of the story of redemption. And if we don't know it, we can't engage in spiritual warfare. Because doing things like contending for the truth of creation is exactly what that is, spiritual warfare. And we can already see the tactics of the enemy have remained pretty consistent throughout history. We need to know what the strategies of the enemy is. So here's what we've seen so far in this study. Ready? Stand by this truth. God always was. God created everything out of nothing with the power of his word. He formed the creation to be suitable for life. He filled his creation with a hierarchy of life with the intention of the creation creating more and more life. And I'm going to leave you with a quote from the pulpit commentary following this section of the creation account before the creation of man. It says, everything is now in readiness for the magnum opus, which is to close his creative labor and crown his completed cosmos. That's us. And ultimately, that is the elect of God.